Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover the management of alloimmunization during pregnancy from the March 2018 ACOG Practice Bulletin. When any fetal blood group factor inherited from the father is not possessed by the mother, antepartum or intrapartum fetal maternal bleeding may stimulate an immune reaction in the mother. Maternal immune reactions can also occur from blood product transfusion. The formation of maternal antibodies or alloimmunization may lead to various degrees of transplacental passage of these antibodies into the fetal circulation. Depending on the degree of antigenicity and the amount and type of antibodies involved, this transplacental passage may lead to hemolytic disease in the fetus and neonate. Advances in Doppler ultrasound have led to the development of non-invasive methods of management of alloimmunization in pregnant women. Together with more established protocols, Doppler ultrasound evaluation may allow for a more thorough and less invasive workup with fewer risks to the mother and fetus than traditional care like amniocentesis. Prevention of alloimmunization will also be addressed in this podcast. All right, now that we've covered that intro, let's get into more specifics. Most of the cases of RH alloimmunization causing transfusion reactions or serious hemolytic disease in the fetus and newborn are the result of incompatibility with respect to the D antigen. Remember that the rhesus group involves antigens C, D, and E. For this reason, the designation RH positive usually indicates the presence of the D antigen and RH negative indicates the absence of D antigen on erythrocytes. Okay, a quick word about this rhesus group. Remember, that involves the letters for the antigens C, D, and E. However, there are actually five major antigens in this group. Again, five major antigens in this group. That is big C and little c, big D, big E, and little e. There is no antiserum specific for a little d designation that has been found, and use of the letter little d indicates the absence of the evident allele product. Anti-big C, anti-little c, anti-d, anti-big e, and anti-e designate specific antibodies directed against their respective antigens. Okay, now the most frequent encountered antibodies other than D are Lewis and I antibodies. Like most cold agglutins, Lewis and I antigens do not cause erythroblastosis because they are predominantly of the immunoglobulin M type, and they are poorly expressed on fetal and newborn erythrocytes. In contrast, Kell antibodies, that's anti-K, can produce erythroblastosis fatalis. Remember, Kell can kill. A more complete list of antibodies is beyond the scope of this podcast, but are available online. Often, Kell alloimmunization is caused by prior transfusion reaction because Kell compatibility was not considered when the blood was cross-matched. Care of patients with sensitization to antigens other than D that are known to cause hemolytic disease should be the same as that for patients with D alloimmunization. 
A possible exception is Kell, in which amniotic fluid analysis has been reported to correlate poorly with a disagree of fetal anemia. So that's a clinical pearl. Again, with Kell sensitization, in which amniotic fluid analytes have been reported to correlate poorly with the severity of fetal anemia, further evaluation is necessary. These patients may benefit from more aggressive fetal assessment, like measurement of the peak systolic velocity in the fetal middle cerebral artery. However, the optimal care of Kell-sensitized patients is still controversial, according to the college. All right, next, let's talk about how race can impact the occurrence of RH alloimmunization. The incidence of RH incompatibility varies by race and ethnicity. Approximately 15% of whites are RH negative, compared with only 5-8% to of African Americans and 1-2% to of Asians and Native Americans. RH alloimmunization can occur only if a sufficient number of erythrocytes from an RH-positive fetus gain access to the circulation of an RH-negative mother. The volume necessary to cause alloimmunization varies from patient to patient and is probably related to the immunogenic capacity of the RH-positive erythrocytes and the immune response of the mother. Fetal maternal hemorrhage sufficient to cause alloimmunization occurs most commonly at delivery in about 15 to 50 percent of births. Specific clinical factors like C-section, multifetal gestation, bleeding placenta previa or abruption, manual removal of the placenta, and intrauterine manipulation may increase the volume of fetal maternal hemorrhage. In most cases, though, excessive fetal maternal hemorrhage occurs with uncomplicated vaginal delivery. The volume of fetal blood entering the maternal circulation is 0.1 ml or less in most cases, resulting in alloimmunization. So that's a clinical pearl. Only 0.1 ml or less is necessary to cause alloimmunization. All right, now remember that alloimmunization is not solely a delivery issue. Alloimmunization has also been reported after threatened abortion and ectopic pregnancy. Several obstetrical procedures may lead to fetal maternal hemorrhage and, in turn, maternal alloimmunization. These include chorionic villi sampling, pregnancy termination, amniocentesis, and external cephalic version. Okay, now that we've laid that foundation, what's the best way to screen women for alloimmunization? Well, all pregnant women should be tested at the time of the first prenatal visit for ABO, blood group, and RHD type and screened for the presence of erythrocyte antibodies. These laboratory assessments should be repeated in each subsequent pregnancy. The American Association of Blood Banks also recommends repeat antibody screening before administration of anti-D immunization globulin, that's Rogam, at 28 weeks of gestation, postpartum, and at the time of any event in bleeding that can trigger fetal to maternal hemorrhage. All right, now when an antibody is found, it's important to determine the titer or the level of that antibody in the maternal serum. A critical titer is that titer associated with a significant risk for severe erythroblastosis fetalis and hydropes, and in most centers, this is between 1 to 8 and 1 to 32 dilution. If the initial antibody titer is 1 to 8 or less, the patient may be monitored with titer assessment every four weeks. For patients with alloimmunization involving antigens other than D, 
similar titer levels should be used to guide care except in Kell-sensitized patients because Kell antibodies do not correlate with fetal status. All right, now that we have the maternal levels identified, what's the next step? Well, let's cover that in the next section. The initial management of a pregnancy involving an alloimmunized patient is determination of the paternal erythrocyte androgen status. If the father is negative for the erythrocyte androgen in question, and we're pretty sure that he's the father of the fetus, further assessment and interventions are unnecessary. In cases of RHD alloimmunization, in which the father is Rh positive, the probability that he's a heterozygote for the D antigen can be reliably estimated by using RHD. D antisera to determine his most likely genotype. If the father is homozygous for the D antigen, all of his children will be Rh positive. If he is heterozygous, then there's a 50% likelihood that each pregnancy will have an Rh negative fetus that is not at risk for anemia. Given that the genes coding for the D antigen are known, a DNA-based diagnosis is commercially available. This form of diagnosis can also be used to identify a number of minor antigens like big C and little c. Big E and little e. Evaluation of alloimmunization to other erythrocytes can also be done. Now, the fetal antigen type should be assessed when the paternal genotype is thought to be heterozygous or is unknown. Amniocentesis is the primary modality used to determine fetal blood type using polymerase chain reaction on uncultured amniocytes in 2 mLs of amniotic fluid. Now, detection of fetal D by molecular analysis of maternal plasma or serum can be assessed in the second trimester with greater than 99% accuracy. In other words, cell-free fetal DNA testing can be done to find the fetal blood type. This is possible because of high concentrations of the fetal DNA in the maternal plasma, but it should be noted, however, according to the college, that this is not widely used as a clinical tool and amniocentesis still remains the primary modality to determine the fetal blood type. Alright, now as we wrap up part one of this two-part series, a quick note about amniotic fluid delta OD testing. Historically, measurement of amniotic fluid bilirubin levels using spectral analysis at P450, that's the change in the optimal density 450, has been the accepted method of assessing the severity of erythroblastosis in utero. Fetal status was determined by plotting the delta OD450 measurement on either a lily graph in the late second and third trimesters or the queening curve for earlier gestational ages. However, the current trend is management with middle cerebral artery Doppler ultrasound. We'll cover that in part two of this two-part series. All right, be sure to tune in to part two where we will cover the middle cerebral artery testing and what to do when levels are reassuring or not reassuring. Thanks for listening.